Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome, Happy New Year to everyone and you too, Mark. Episode 328, Thursday, January the 4th. 2024. How are you, Mark? I'm just trying to get rid of the food coma from Christmas. <laughs> it's it is been, a bit. Was a, was a, I, I ate so much, I'm embarrassed to admit. Um, but looking forward to a wonderful new year and uh, a whole series of new podcasts. Yes, it is. It is a bit of a an indulgence period, isn't it, over Christmas? And uh, so we do try and get out there, Mark, and go for big walks or whatever. We did a bit of a hike around uh, Warrandyte, Mark. We didn't didn't mention that to you, Annie and I spent a morning um, hiking around the goldfield area, not far from us. That was good fun. Ended up at a nice little cafe and had a a, a toasty. (laughs) (laughs) I... would be interested in hearing from some of our listeners, but I think a lot of us live very close to some very special places, and so it's, I'm glad you and Annie get out and um, take advantage of some of the local wonders and top it off with a little bit of a, a, yes, a toasty at a local cafe. Always typical, isn't it, that you know you you look interstate overseas for fantastic places and you forget about the beautiful places around the corner from you so yes something that we need to do more of and you're heading back up north soon i hear and i am um about to um hop into those uh big planes in the sky and um get back up to the tip of cape york and um spend a uh another few months up there it's it is crocodile nesting season and so i will be going out and harvesting some eggs and uh and uh, we're going to try to we we put some trackers on three and a half meter crocodiles and and so we're going some of those have failed and we're going to try and see if we can get those uh crocodiles and see why they have um they've failed initially we were a bit depressed about it Brendan, but uh, it looks like the crocodiles don't sun themselves as much as to charge up the solar uh, battery, solar powered batteries in those um, in those uh, uh, trackers, and so uh, maybe there needs to be some adjustment made to them. To you need to get more. the trackers from Microchips Australia, <laughs> of course. I've um, had that discussion with the uh, the team. Don't worry, their um, solar panels are much more efficient, Mark. Um, so that's the that's the way to go. You, you, you can't fail that way. You can't fail. Well, safe trips, Mark, when you head up there, and yeah, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Holidays to all our listeners. And I did. We had a little bit of a chat about things we were doing over the over the break, and I had a bit of a break, seven ten days off, Mark, and I did do the the um, the Barbieheimer. Um, duo, Mark. Um, I've watched <laughs> Barbie, the movie, and the Oppenheimer movie. So, um, as usual, I'm only halfway up to where you are up to. I've seen the Barbie movie, but well, I, we can I, chat about Barbie then, and we'll chat about Oppenheimer next time. How about that? Sounds like a plan. And what did you think um, of the Barbie movie, Mark? 
This is the way I would put it to you, Brendan. I would say that sometimes I watch a movie for which I have very, like I've read the reviews, I have a low expectation, and that low expectation is just barely exceeded, and so I feel good about the movie. I feel it's done better than the um, the uh, than the reviews suggested it might. Well, the reviews for the Barbie movie for me were exceptionally high. I had, you know, the highest of expectations about about what sort of a movie it was, and while I still think it was very, very, very good. Um, it didn't. I don't think it lived up to the hype for me. I'm going to say. I think it was a little bit. There was none of the nuance or subtlety. The you know, while the surface of it was colourful cartoon, that uh, I expected some of the subtext to be maybe less obvious and and uh, more nuanced. And I don't know. I felt like I'd been hit over the head with a giant pink plastic hammer, to be honest. Um, so I didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I was going to. I thought it had a lot of good things to say. I think it's an important piece of social commentary. I don't doubt its importance, but, yeah, it didn't, didn't quite make the grade for me, I'm sorry to say. Well, my summary, Mark, it was a bit of fun. <laughs> bit of fun. Yeah. Nothing serious, that's for sure, and nothing too deep. Um, I think people were trying to read too much into it. I certainly uh, was. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah, a bit of fun. Um, I enjoyed it. It was a good escape for whatever it was, 90 minutes, two hours. Um, so I, I did enjoy it. I don't. Th- I certainly certainly um, didn't think I wasted my time seeing it, but um, it, um, it wasn't, yeah. Oscar material. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah bit of fun, bit of fun. So we'll see. We'll review Oppenheimer next week, uh, the week after, and um, I'd be interested in our listeners' opinions of Barbie the movie, Mark. Um, I would be very yes. interested. What did you think of the 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 um the way that Mattel Corporation was, was painted well, as a relatively malignant dark force in the movie oh a little bit um i i I didn't read too much into it i think they've the the sales of sales of barbie (laughs) can have gone through the roof haven't they yes Um, yes. since (laughs) since the movie so i don't i don't think they they were too worried about that but yeah i I, yeah the 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 men in suits the women in suits um yeah yes but it was a bit, all a bit cartoonish, wasn't it? With with a lot of that sort of stuff as well. Um, yeah. So, yes, um, Ken made me laugh. I must admit, I mean, he did make me laugh. <laughs> and, um, well, there we go, Mark. That's our review. We better get on to some news and into a main topic and talk about some exotic pet news, wildlife news, and we have a theme for our news. We do have a theme this week. Um, Sleep, which is something that we need lots of this time of the year, Mark. And my article is about nesting penguins, the chin strap penguins, a study showing they nod off to the extreme. They nod off over 10,000 times a day for seconds at a time. They have these little micro sleeps, Mark, and 
tell you what, I reckon I have a, I have a few of them um, as well. The, the thing I didn't like about this, though, Mark, is the way they the way they perform this. They um, they studied the daily sleep patterns of fourteen nesting chin straps using data loggers mounted on the bird's back, yeah. which is fair enough. But they had electrodes surgically implanted in their brains um, to measure the brain activity. No, I know. So they found that they were had incredibly fragmented sleep patterns, taking on over six hundred micro sleeps per hour, according to the article, um, each averaging around four seconds, and um, they thought they'd evolve that way to cope with potential predators, etc. Um, so they just have these little sleeps while they're staying attentive for potential predators, Mark. So, yes. Um, do they do the um, dolphins? Do they, it's the whole brain that... Uh, slips into some form of sleep. It's not like the half brain thing that. Yes, they are actual full. They are micro sleeps. Yes, yes. Um, So very interesting. And I think that's possibly happens in. in other species as well, not just other birds, but they they might think it can happen in some others. I've seen some of the other aquatic animals I was um, um, talking about. Yeah, um, yeah. dolphins, the cetaceans. Of course, and and dolphins, yes, that's yeah. what I was trying to think of, dolphins, yes. Mm. So what have you got, Mark? Well, as you said, your article. With the theme, I'm, uh, my article talks about reindeers, uh, which is uh, both um, a wonderful segue and consistent with the theme and seasonally topical as well. And this study... Um, in current biology, it uh, it suggests that reindeer can do their chewing the cud bit and catch a few zeds at the same time. And fortunately, the four trained female Eurasian tundra reindeer didn't have to have electrodes put in their brain, but they did put them on their skin. That training process, I thought the researchers were very clever to describe, uh, involved some kicks and a lot of lichen treats. So I don't know what lichen treats look like, but, well, that seemed to do the job. They got the electrodes on and uh, the researchers were looking for brain waves um, that appeared during non-REM sleep. Um, and uh, their char- that, those brain waves are characterised. Uh, the the REM, non-REM sleep is a deep restorative sleep phase, and they did get these brain waves when the the reindeer were chewing their cud. So I don't know. Look, I I am not going to say. Like I think this sleep is going to be different to what we know as sleep. I think the different parts of the brain will be doing different things and and while the electrical activity might be analogous to what we see as um, non-REM sleep, I don't know that the reindeers are t- like doing exactly the same thing that, um, that we consider sleep while they chew on their cuts. Yeah. It's probably where the whole chewing the cud thought um, and, and r- ruminating, ruminating. Pe- people who are ruminating, sort of off with the fairies a bit thinking, half half sleeping, half uh, chewing the cud. Yeah, maybe that's where it's, it all sort of comes from. 
Yeah, a little bit different. Ask, ask, like, while we're on this topic, I have, you've told me a couple of times that you're prone to a uh, little bit of a snooze after lunch on Christmas Day on the couch um, with your mouth open and drawer running out of the corner. Did that happen this year? Uh, no, I didn't actually. Very close. It did when I got home, actually. <laughs> I had the snooze when I, when I got home, but I was. I was very good. Um, I was enjoying the Christmas pudding too much, and I <laughs> hoed into a second serve of the pudding and, and sauce, Mark. Um, so it wasn't until I was bundled in the car um, and told <laughs> we're out of here, I'm taking you home, that uh, I got home and uh, had a little schnooze and a snore, Mark. Yes, that was a... I'm glad you had a micro-sleep as well, Brendan. Yes. I think my whole life's a micro-sleep, <laughs> yes. So there we go, two um, two articles on sleep and chewing the cud, Mark. And there's no segue into our main topic here. It's the main topic we've, we have covered partially in two previous episodes, Mark, episode 74 in 2019 and episode 177 which was February 2021, when we covered female distal urethral stones in guinea pigs. We're covering urolithiasis generally in guinea pigs. Reason being is um, I keep seeing these, Mark, so it's always on on my mind. And it's a um, very interesting sort of process, the whole idea of um, diagnosing them, treating them, and also the challenge of preventing urethral Lithiasis in guinea pigs, Mark. Well, that answers my first question for you, Brendan. It is is it a common thing for you to see? Do you see particular patterns amongst the patients that you see? Or, yep. Uh, yeah, <laughs> of course. We see do. plenty of them. Yeah, we <laughs> see a lot of them. And I think, interestingly enough, I think we said in the pre- – I haven't re-listened to our, those previous episodes. I think you don't see as many as – we do, Mark, That's or right. did down here. But, yeah, we see them regularly, Mark. So whether that's something in the food or the water here in um, Melbourne <laughs> with the piggies, but we see a fair percentage of them. And, you know, classically we see them in two spots in the urethral region and the urogenital orifice, but also in the bladder, Mark, and, and yes. the signs certainly fit in with that. Um, with these, so so these are piggies that are presented to us from the the owners saying their piggies squealing, you know. And you know what a lot of guinea pigs are like, Mark. Um, you look at them and they scream. Um, so if they have something that's any anything more than a tiny bit painful, they they'll let you know usually, won't they? Um, so the guinea pigs are, is... are vocalising. Yes, the guinea pigs are vocalising. They are, they are, have strangurea commonly. Um, they're straining to urinate, um, and a lot of them also have blood tinged yeah. or red tinged urine. That's what we tend to see. Have you had similar sort of yes. experiences with the few that you've seen? It is. It does seem to be a disproportionate, like other species that have uroliths. Many of them will occur without hemorrhage into the urinary tract, but guinea pigs, that blood seems to be a very common uh, uh, um, clinical sign that exists in a, in a large proportion of the animals with stones. Yep. And these 
predominantly are calcium carbonate stones in, in guinea pigs, and it's all part of the whole process of their metabolism and ha how the um, urolifts form, and it does make, because of that, the challenge of try trying to help uh, prevent their occurrence, which we'll get on to um, shortly. So workup, Mark, um, we should really... So the signs are pretty classic. It's a guinea pig that's, you know, potentially hunched up it's vocalizing especially when it's urinating um it's it's doing lots of small urinations or one one or two big large urinations that, that in in atypical spots um including on the client when they, when they're getting them out to cuddle them and red urine mark um so the workup that we do mark my my typical workup for these apart from the obvious clinical history and um, getting information about if is there anything different and there is a bit of a, um, a link with potentially food items that we'll chat about and and the the increased chance of these occurring in guinea pigs so getting a detailed history it's an obvious full clinical examination there and and i'm especially concentrating on a couple of things with the clinical exam there mark and that's um Having a gentle feel of that bladder. Um, hopefully, they're not screaming too much when they're when we're palpating that bladder because it, it is it is apparently very painful when we're touching a fair number of them, and you can feel that thickened bladder on them. Um, even with the ones where there's there isn't a urolith in the bladder, the bladders often we do have an inflamed bladder going on there, but especially. Also examining that urogenital region there, Mark, because I see a hell of a lot of the the female guinea pigs with those stones that are stuck just near the outflow there, Mark, um, just in that distal urethral area. So you can yep. often feel those stones. The, the majority of the ones I get to see, I think, are, are palpable just in the... Um, very close to the external genitalia. So I, I agree with you. I think you need to uh, be very careful with your palpation around there. The, the bladder is regularly palpable and those uh, more distal stones are uh, um, very often palpable. I mean, it's, it, it, it's so common. I've seen them so often, Mark, that that's part of my normal clinical examination of any adult guinea pig, especially the female guinea pigs gently palpating that region around the urogenital area where those stones tend to tend to um, form mark um, so that's part of my normal clinical exam of any female guinea pig yep uh, and then we do blood we do a workup uh, the obvious ones there are we give it a brief anesthetic we take bloods we do survey radiographs and the tip there is making sure that you're when you're taking that radiograph um, that you're covering that whole area including tip the exit points there of the yes. urogenital region because you might might only do that classic radiograph where you take up to the up to the hips and the and the, and the pelvic region and you get the bladder and the kidneys etc but you miss the stone on there that was a, a real distal urethral stone so make sure you take the whole you know third caudal aspect of the of the um, piggy get two views there to try and um, narrow down um, where those stones are or, or to locate um, urolith you may miss that's overlying the pelvic region and collecting a sample of urine mark um, for at least as a basic in-house urinalysis but ideally sending that off for a culture and sensitivity because a, a large percentage of these will have a 
have a urinary tract infection as part of the whole process. Anything else that you can do, Mark, with the workup that you'd suggest? Brendan, I, I, in reading the literature concerning um, um, the, the uh, clinical signs, one of the things that I, after we did our last podcast, I, I uh, noted that there was some data that suggested body temperature was an important prognostic indicator. And, you know, we normally think of of uh, guinea pigs as having a bit of a wide body temperature, 37.5 to 39.5 is what I usually sort of think about. But I did read a publication that said the likelihood of survival dropped, doubled for each drop in degree less than 37.5. Um, have you had any thoughts on the, the use of Inter- temperature? Interesting thought, Mark. But... <sighs> I hate taking rectal temperatures with guinea pigs because it is hard to get, in my experience, an accurate temperature there because you're often sitting yes. at the tip of that thermometer in some feces there, um, especially well, the other also thing. in the in the boys as well with those dilated, you know, rectal regions in those entire males there, Mark. So I don't. I don't, yes, the boar butts. I don't trust my rectal temperature taking technique a lot of the time. So that's my only comment regarding that. Well, I've been, I, once I'd read that, I took the time to try and take the temperature. But a lot of the, the um, guinea pigs that, um, it becomes very difficult to take their temperature because that's the sore part. You're sticking it in yep. around their, uh, um, around their perineum and, and for those ones particularly that uh, that have a stone close to the urogenital opening, I doubt that I'm going to be accurate enough with the temperature. But, yeah, I was just interested in your opinion. Yes. No, well, I, I, my opinion is I don't know uh, because, <laughs> because I don't trust my info um, that I'm getting from there. But, yeah, taking the temperature of any of these small mammals is an important part of the clinical exam. The other the other diagnostics you can certainly do, Mark, um, pop an ultrasound on there, um, easy um, to do if you've got one sitting around and, and certainly non-invasive, so that can reveal a lot about the structure of that bladder, the thickness of the bladder wall and uh, the location and number of the um, stones and all the sludge um, in the urinary system and you can have a bit of a poke around and look at the, the kidneys as well, Mark. Brendan, yeah, I wanted to get back to how many of the cases that you've seen, like rough proportion, have urinary tract infections. My, my, it's been, I've had a whole lot of difficulty confirming a UTI in the cases that I've had. How have you gone with that? Gee, that's a loaded question, isn't it, Mark? Yes. <laughs> I just suggested you do a culture and sensitivity, and um, yeah, you're correct in that there is. <laughs> A reasonable number of them that we get a, a, a um, an equivocal culture going yeah. on there, and I'm thinking, have you know, have I messed up my my culture again, um, or as you're alluding to with Mark's theory that that perhaps uh, um, there is a a fair percentage of them that there isn't a urinary tract infection going on. Is that what you're hinting at? Oh, well, I, I I do the same as you. I I try and uh have at least um, assess the urine for the likelihood that there's white cells and bacteria in it. 
I, I um, the cultures that I've gotten are almost always E. coli or one of the other um, uh, gram-negative gut flora. And I just, I worry that, you know, whether it's my technique or a lot of these, you know, they could be ascending infections, but I wonder about contamination and... Uh, yes, and, great and point. How, and the etiology, what role is it after the event? Um, are the stones the primary problem? Are the stones occurring because of an infection? Yeah. I've, I, my comments on that would be <laughs> several. <laughs> I love your comments. I, I have, had, have had a few cultures where they have certainly cultured something weird and wonderful that with, yeah. a, with an obvious urinary tract infection. So that's where... That's where I think it's important to ideally still do that culture and sensitivity. And with the worry with antimicrobial resistance, um, we should be trying yes. to push for that regardless. And if it did come back as suspect that, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't a, a UTI um, and we may not have much, many white blood cells in there, I must admit, I do tend to still cover them with a, a narrow spectrum antibody like trimethoprim sulfur, yeah. um, regardless, because I'm just worried that they're so painful there that it's such an inflamed urinary tract um, and, and bleeding um, from it. It's a compromised um, system that um, I, I just don't want to not um, cover it with at least a, a narrow ish spectrum of antibiotics mark um, but but yeah it's a it's a it's a tricky one isn't it it's a great comment about you know that you'd struggle to culture a significant um or confirm um significant urinary tract infections in some of these cases so i'd love to hear from our listeners mark on on that vetgurus at gmail.com send us an email about your thoughts on that whole process so talk to me about treatment, Brendan. What, what, where do you, once you've confirmed a case, where do you go with treatment? Where do we go? Well, it depends where our, where our stones are. Obviously, the ideal treatment is to um, get rid of those uroliths um, and, and get rid of any of that grit, that sludgy urine there. So the first step I will then, or the next step I'll be doing after that initial workup there is um, catheterizing um, the, the bladder there, um, flushing, um, flushing, 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 um, trying to flush out um, any, any uroliths mark, those distal uroliths in the females um, some of them you can just use a bit of local in that region and i do tend to infuse a bit of local into the catheter mark as part yeah. of um, catheterizing the bladder there um, otherwise it's almost like an episiotomy um, i do there a little incision over that distal stone if it looks like i can't gently um, manipulated it out um, I just make a direct incision over that um, stone and then it, it pops out and I don't put any sutures in there they tend yep. to magically heal themselves quite well and then there's the difficulty dealing with those bladder ones mark um, wow. those bladder stones so you know what do you do if you've got a bladder that's just full of a bit of sand do you flush it and, and that's it um, if you do have a, a euro lift that's more than a few millimeters in diameter um, you need to try and 
get that out there you know what choices do you have you have a choice of leaving it in there it's probably going to continue to irritate it and um, so unless you're treating it like a palliative care case and the owners don't want to go down the track of removing it um, we'd be trying to remove it and and you could try and remove it by catheterizing and sometimes flushing um, you manage to do it that way I had a recent case which was a great little case report of a of a um, bladder stone in a guinea pig that was um, four millimetres mark. It was a decent-sized stone. I flushed, catheterised and flushed the bladder, um, woke the guinea pig up, sent off for a culture and sensitivity, started on some analgesia and, and antibiotics, um, and um, the guinea pig went home while the owners were deciding whether or not to take it to a cystotomy, and it, and it passed the stone overnight <laughs> at home, you know, and it's a, and they brought the stone in. It's a pretty damn big stone to pass, and this was a male guinea pig, and the males in Jeez. particular have a pretty, you know, and, and I looked up the um, some of the um, literature on it, and they did, there was a, there's a quote in one of the books, I think, the Queensbury book saying that... Um, guinea pigs may pass bladder stones up to five millimetres diameter and this one was four millimetres. So, you know, reading that, um, I, w- I would have thought, oh, yeah, there's no way they're going to pass a five millimetre, four millimetre stone. But it passed it overnight, bit of pain relief, Mark, flushing the bladder um, and yep. popped it out. Otherwise, we, we've got to do a cystotomy. Yeah. And uh, I don't like to do them in guinea pigs because, one, they – it's a pretty big surgery for them and as we talk about with the prevention bit there's a chance that we remove that stone we flush the bladder and we surgically remove it and and several weeks or several months down the track um, they have another one it does seem to be that that has been my experience that um wow i don't know uh, what the percentage is but a significant number within a year they've uh, they've got. They've had another one, uh, particularly the ones that we have to go to um, cystotomy to, and it makes me scared as well, Brendan. I, I really want to uh, try and make sure that um, that surgery is is curative and not ever needed to be repeated. Um, but but yeah, and I don't know whether the surgery itself predisposes to recurrence or whether. Um, the recurrence is, uh, you know, if you were able to get them out without surgery, those same guinea pigs would have a recurrence in any case. Yeah. I, my, my thoughts are the surgery itself shouldn't um, make them prone to the recurrence. That's because you're a much better surgeon than I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've got a theory, Mark, which I'll talk to you about in a minute, wild guinea pigs and these, these um, stones um, versus pet guinea pigs um, so preventing these urolith marks so so you know the classic spots we've mentioned are the, in the urethral region and also in the bladder but we can get them elsewhere in the urinary tract including renal renal mm, stones i've seen a couple of kidney them. ones so we just bear that in mind when you're um, working them up mark but prevention wise um we i think we talk about three or four different things with our clients regarding this and 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 that the obvious ones are trying to encourage them to diurese a bit more so encourage water intake and that's doing simple things like making sure they've got more than one water sipper um they tend to like to drink from the sippers rather than a water bowl but i tell clients to put at least two sippers in at least one water bowl wetting their foods um, especially those veggies a huge range of vegetables um, and running them literally under the 
kitchen tap first yep. feeding them out wet so we're trying to encourage more water intake and and perhaps even increase in the percentage of higher water content um, vegetables so we're, we're flushing those kidneys mark some you know there's there's reports in the literature and sometimes i i recommend it um, and dispense it and other times i don't is using potassium citrate yeah um and the thoughts there that it sort of binds binds the um, calcium, stops those calcium carbonate um, crystals forming. But um, I think the jury's still out about whether that whole process works because we have the whole metabolism of calcium metabolism in in guinea pigs works, and and whether or not it does actually help prevent. Um, as far as I know, there isn't any reported toxicities, but it can potentially be toxic in theory. So with with causing potassium problems, Mark. So that's the other one that's used. And, and, and that's, you'll read some papers do talk about actually adding diuretics, pure diuretics, to try and encourage the water intake with them as well. Uh, and the and final I've one definitely sort of diet, Mark. I was just going to say that I definitely have used diuretics sort of like in the acute phase once yes. the guinea pigs have recovered from an anaesthetic and uh, maybe we've worked that stone out just for the three or four days after that, once they are taking water on their own, um, uh, adding a diuretic to t increase water turnover in the short term. I haven't done it as a long-term solution, though. Yes, no, neither, neither have I, Mark. And the other is is, is sort of the dietary changes. Um, and again, pretty controversial. Contra well, I think controversial about whether it works or not, and that's the whole thought of feeding low calcium putting them on a low calcium diet or at least avoiding the really high calcium um, vegetables, for instance, with them. Um, I do think that, though, Mark, there is a direct link with the male guinea pigs um, yeah. and feed-in supplements to guinea pigs, Mark, and I'm talking specifically, and I don't know whether they are available in many, in all regions of the world, Mark, the um, salt licks or the mineral blocks um, that are often sold at the, you know, so even the supermarkets and that. So yep, these yep. Um, blocks that, you know, provide extra minerals and nutrition to your guinea pig. Um, I do think there's a link between feeding those um, and, and causing the causing the stones um, because I've had a few over the years where, um, and it's one of the questions I ask the clients fairly early on in the consultation, you know, what are you feeding your guinea pig? And if they say, we, you know, oh, and we give them a, a mineral block as well, then uh, alarm bells start ringing. So that, that's anecdotal, but that's my thoughts on that, Mark. I tend not to bother about um, trying to feed low calcium foods to them um, unless they're feeding some weird and wonderful high calcium you know, vegetables with them. Um, and I do think there's a bit of a link with, like, all, all of these, our exotics, marks if they're on a really weird diet, um, so they're not just on the, you know, veggies and hay, that they're on a, you know, a, a, a poor quality um, mix, um, especially, um, with lots of nuts and seeds and those, those guinea pig, you know, rabbit mixes that you yeah. can get from the supermarket. I do think there's a probably a link there and that gets to my theory mark about um wild guinea pigs yeah um and pet guinea pigs and uh, you know do we see um do we see urolithiasis in in wild guinea pigs i don't know 
Um, I haven't done a literature search on it, but I'd be surprised if we see it anywhere near the level that we see in pet guinea pigs. And I reckon there must be something we're doing um, with these pet guinea pigs that's not related. Maybe there is something related to to breeding and, and genetics there, Mark, but I think it's probably related to we've been too soft on them. They've been fed diets. They shouldn't be fed. You know, guinea pigs as a species, they eat crap. They should be fed crap, um, and we don't feed them crap. You know, in, native guinea pigs in, in South America, they're eating really, really high-fibre diets in, in high-altitude regions is where they sort of come from. So they're eating really – they're eating wood, Mark. They're eating fibre, fibre, fibre. So even the, even the, the hay and veggie diets that, and we tend to feed, I think, are too – rich for a better word um there should be a better word than that um not high enough fiber um and i think that that's my theory well i've I've got a couple of questions about your theory do you think that because i reckon uh exercise plays a role as well that the more active the more the guinea pigs roam the more active they are um then the less likelihood there's a problem um and that could be as simple as jostling the bladder when it's got a few tiny stones that might be considered normal and in that and so they don't settle out and build up into big things but i've seen it far less in guinea pigs that i know have a significant amount of exercise yes. and sunlight ah uh, yes do you yes. think exposure to sunlight might play a role in this problem yes absolutely that Guinea pigs need sunlight, Mark. Um, when you think about, again, where they naturally occur, the, the level of the vitamin D UV exposure um, they'll be getting is, is certainly higher. And, yeah, they're a creature that doesn't like to sit in the open, that's, that's for sure. They like to seek shelter all the time um, to not be predated upon. But, yes, um, great point. So, again, I think it's what we're doing as humans, the way we're keeping them um, is 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 the problem, yeah. Um, but I think the good thing about that, though, Brendan, and one of the good things about our podcast, we keep returning to it, is that it's within our capacity to change that. that, that while there may be a genetic component, I think that um, guinea pigs that uh, get a good deal of sunshine, get a lot of exercise and, uh, and eat, Not fat. A, eat a lot of um, stuff that's rich in fibre, I think we can manage that and um, improve their husbandry and lessen the likelihood of the the uh, occurrence of urolithiasis. Yep. Well said. Well said. And as I mentioned earlier, Mark, I'd, I'd be extremely interested to hear from any of our listeners about their thoughts on on Brendan and Mark's pathetic theories um, <laughs> and, and uh, your experiences with urolithiasis in guinea pigs. Send I think us we an need email to start a journal. At gmail.com. What? <laughs> yes, yeah, we do. Pathetic theories. <laughs> I think with that, Mark, again, all the best for 2024. Happy New Year to all our listeners and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. 
Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.